0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the ESPN F1 podcast. I'm Nate Saunders and, unfortunately this week, it's just me you've got to put up with. Don't worry, it's not a one-man show. I've got a couple of guests this week and we're talking about the only real thing, the only racing that we've been seeing over the past couple of weeks, and that is racing online, specifically eSports. Formula One has launched a virtual racing series, which... It's pitting several F1 drivers, not the whole grid, but a few of them up against some of eSports' best, some of the best athletes in the world taking part as well. We've had Ben Stokes, we've had Ian Poulter. The undoubted star so far of eSports have been Lando Norris, the Rookie of the Year last year in Formula One. Absolute record-breaking numbers across Twitch in the first two weeks of F1's official virtual racing series. But he's not been alone. There's been other drivers. There's been George Russell, there's been Charles Leclerc, who apparently is one of those annoying people that is good at pretty much anything he puts his hand to. I've got two interviews lined up. For this pod one of which is a pretty remarkable story it was a guy who was a competitive carter as a kid raced alongside max verstappen the money ran out and he turned to esports and amazingly that journey led him back to racing notably to one of fauna one's most famous teams mclaren he ended up as a simulator driver alongside none other than fernando alonso and stoffel Dorn a couple of years ago that's rudy van buren but first My first guest is Nigel Geach from Nielsen. Now he's head of motorsports at Nielsen and he's got some fascinating insights into the reach of this over the past couple of weekends and some ideas about where this might go in the future and the way Formula One can capitalise on this to reach that all-important 18 to 24 demographic. So here's my interview with Nigel and straight afterwards we'll go into the interview with Mr Van Buren. So in this indefinite delay of Formula One and sports in general, esports has become... Uh, a pretty massive deal to a lot of people because it's pretty much the only way we can not just watch sports but also watch athletes taking part in those sports and Formula One has really been at the forefront of this um, and joining us to talk about that is Nigel Geach who is uh, the Senior Vice President of Global Motorsports at Nielsen. Nigel thanks so much for coming on the podcast I really appreciate it. How are you doing?
1: Yeah I'm good thank you very much. It's like you looking forward to the beginning of the Formula One season.
0: Yeah and have you been, have you been watching as I have with uh, sort of morbid curiosity how this esports has kind of developed because the last couple of weeks it's really been it's been fascinating seeing new people take up esports, but also just understanding how it actually works beyond you know what it was doing in the previous couple of years
1: yeah i mean i've obviously taken an interest since it started in in whatever form it started as you say a couple of years ago um but i think you know what's happened now is that it's very much become central of a lot of people's sports lives and that uh, Formula One has done a fantastic job in in bringing it to the forefront, and uh, no, I mean it's fascinating, and I actually watched um, the virtual Grand National the other day as well, which was again fascinating and, and actually quite absorbing, really, and and it actually got I think uh, four point two million viewers on ATV, which is amazing as well. But um, Formula One generally, I think, have have done a good job with regard to you know bringing this to the fore. It was, you know, gaming and e-sports has always been around. And certainly the young guys in our office play a lot of e-sports on on Formula One between themselves or, you know, sort of in their off time. Um, So it's great, but it's now with the involvement of, you know, several of the young drivers has become forefront in the entertainment and keeping Formula One you know, in people's minds, which is the battle today, isn't it? Is to make sure that people don't forget about it and not that they will. But, um, you know, sort of keep and creating, I think, which is even more important, a new audience, which um, the figures that we've been uh, being able to put out show that, you know, that magical 18 to 24 audience um, is taking Formula One into its heart. And, uh, you know, Formula One themselves are very
0: pleased about that. Yeah, and talking, talking just raw numbers, what have you seen from, we've obviously had two official F1 events. There was the Bahrain, um, Grand Prix, and then there was technically what was called the Viet- Vietnam Grand Prix, but yes, it was actually held at the Australian Grand Prix because obviously F1 2019, the Codemasters game that they used doesn't actually feature that because it was a new circuit for this year, which in itself I thought was quite a, it was quite a nice quirk and just another reminder that it was kind of, it wasn't real life, it was being done on the game. But how, how, how have these things just been in terms of, analyzing the numbers of this has that been quite easy to do and what what is the yeah. conclusion you've come to from that
1: yeah i mean analyzing the numbers uh has been you know challenging obviously and and finding out where it was broadcast and who was who was looking at it and and the, uh but the numbers are very impressive i think we've we've said that 244 there's been a potential reach of 244 million people for those races, which is big number. I mean, that's big numbers. Yeah. And they've, they've been on social media and, and where the, the race has been mentioned. It doesn't mean that everybody's watched it for the whole race, but they, they've been talking about it. So the, the potential reach of that is massive. I mean, uh, te- uh, I think over the year, TV gets about 405 unique viewers, 405 million unique viewers, um, which is, you know, a lot of people as well. Um, and uh, no it's been very impressive but I think as I said earlier the the most impressive thing is that you know 40% of these discussions have been between in the the younger age group the 18 to 35 or the 18 um, to 24 year olds um, certainly and uh, that generation Z or what I think it's called generation alpha now uh, the, the young ones but you know we passed the millennials uh, and now we're into generation Z so
0: and that's, that's traditionally the, the, the market that F1 has really been trying to, to connect with as well. You know, there was, there was definitely a much older demographic, especially in the Bernie Eccleston years. A lot of people said, that, you know, the, the fan base was much older than a lot of other sports. A lot, you know, sports obviously trying to get a younger and younger audience in. So it seems like esports is a really easy way to connect with that, that exact demographic you're talking about.
1: Yes. I think, and you know, there are not going to be any advantages kind of kind of virus, but the you know, it's mitigating disaster, isn't it? And uh, you know, it's just the way that it's developed. And I think um, you know, sort of it's built on the foundations that everybody was was looking at, uh, as you say, when it changed from the Bernie era to um to the new era. And it was a worry that the audience, like a lot of sports like golf and tennis and things like that, were getting older and the traditional the free to wear viewers and things like that um, we're getting older and where we brought in um, you know uh, the sports the sports marketeers where they brought in this younger audience because you're competing with a younger audience not only with other sports is going you know children uh, going to uh, the supermarket the weekend other entertainment so it's it's had a very positive effect and and that's nice to see
0: yeah, and you mentioned it um very early on when we started speaking. But the the younger drivers, especially, have really gravitated towards this. They all seem to have these incredible setups in their home where they have, you know, this basically this entire simulator gaming rig setup. I mean, if if I'd grown up with one of those, I think maybe I'd have had a shot of being at least a semi semi decent driver. Um, but Lando Norris, especially for McLaren, is kind of I guess is the face of esports. Um, and some of his numbers on Twitch have been remarkable. And you know that that's people sitting watching him sitting in his seat as well talking to them as well what impact does that have actually people engaging with an athlete rather than just the event because it's very different to traditionally how people have not just have um have consumed formula one but have really consumed a lot of sports traditionally is you watch the product and that's it whereas this is kind of another way into to watching that product and enjoying it and engaging with the people actually taking part in it
1: I think it's been key to the success of it is bringing a personality uh, or personalities to the to the events. Uh, um, I mean, people follow their heroes, and I think one of the one of the problems that Formula One had was that yes, you you saw them getting into their cars, but once they're in their cars, you couldn't see their faces because you could see their helmets. And I think also coupled with the success of something like uh, Drive to Survive, the Netflix documentary. Where it got really behind the scenes and actually introduced the the heroes to the public, and of course this is is from um, this even more because you know there are the interviews, the anecdotal, um, you know, laughter and the you know sort of banter between the two, and it's good to see that that era, the younger, I mean all four one one drivers are young compared with me, but um, you know, sort of the young the younger driver, you know, the eighteen to twenty four year olds. I mean, you know, Lewis Hamilton is considered old now. Um, but you know, that that new generation is embracing this. And the Clerks and the um, you know, sort of Lando's and and Max Verstappen, who was a gamer long, you know, sort of I think he was brought up in gaming and sort of never came out of his room. And he now, you know, he didn't take part in the first one because he hadn't had much practice on that game. And you know, the competition and the rivalry is there, but I think, I think it's so important, but it's not just because everybody was worried, weren't they about e-gaming and e-sports and e-this, and that it would be a personality, it wouldn't be a personality thing. This has really brought it to it. So it's the benefit of technology with the personality and it's, It helps the teams, it helps the sponsors, it helps the individual drivers. And as you say, the Twitch, um, you know, sort of uh, following was amazing.
0: Yeah, and I mean, Twitch shows some great stuff. Norris has obviously, uh, he's had some technical difficulties with his F1 2019 game both weekends, which kind of stopped him competing. But last week, he basically was on a phone call with Max, and Max said, you should just probably uninstall the game, and then he did it. (laughs) <laughs> Which, in terms of interaction you know we, we we see snippets of that in the Thursday press conference in Formula One and sometimes that that environment's quite forced it's not that natural because they've kind of got all these cameras and lights in front of them and that's actually what's really stood out to me is that it's it's the most natural you've you've seen or heard any of these guys really behaving because it's as you say it's something that they have just been doing for so long they feel natural and they don't feel like it's this press intrusion or this kind of this this thing they've got to do in front of the camera so I, I found that really fascinating and um Another aspect to it is, on top of the drivers, we've seen some other athletes getting involved. Obviously, we had Courtois getting involved. We had um, Ian Polter, um, Ben Stokes, World Cup. You know, if you're English, Ben Stokes is a huge deal. Maybe if you're not, you might not be. You know, a World Cup winning cricketer. That just, I guess, adds to it, and it and it must broaden the horizons beyond just your racing fan or somebody who wants to just say, "Hey, I want to watch people gaming." Uh, on F one 2019, because I guess a Ben Stokes fan might never have played that game before until, until Stokes did at the weekend.
1: Yeah, and also you know followers of Ben Stokes probably uh, maybe not followers of Formula One. So I think it's going to have a knock-on effect on that. And you know everybody, as we do, and we we carry out research across the world in every single sport. Um, you know the, the sponsors and the and the rights holders they want to bring in new fans. They don't necessarily, obviously, they want to increase their avid fans. um, But, you know, the avid fan is generally, unless you upset them terribly, they will always be there. But but in this, you know, ever-changing society and and the competition of time, you know, the the casual fan or the occasional fan is, is so important. So if you can bring in a few cricket fans, you can bring in, you know, Ian Poulter's golf mates and things like that, um, they will end up by looking at esports and, or the games or whatever, we're, you know, sort of, they're, they're looking at. And, and they will talk about Formula One. And so they may watch a race, which is, you know, for every sponsor that is, um, you know, sort of putting his product out there, that's very important. And again, um, you know, it's bringing keeping the churn of, of fans down is the secret of success. And, and, you know, sports is a very, you know, why are we, you know, talking about sports now? Because we can't watch sport, um, you know, sort of, uh, that's a big, big problem for people, you know. But, and why is everybody talking about people's, you know, welfare in, in their lockdown is that, you know, there's no live sport because sport is very, very important to people's lives. So anything that can, you know, make it more important in different people's lives is is very important
0: too. I guess the question everyone's going to ask is, um, when there's no sports on, esports has this incredible reach. F1 esports has this incredible reach. So how does Formula One incorporate that? You know, you've been you've been involved in motorsports for a long time, and obviously at Nielsen, I guess you guys understand how people interact with things, the, the reach as we've been speaking about. Um, if you were in charge of F1, I mean, how would you how would you embrace this to to really maximise his impact. There's been talk of incorporating it into a, a race weekend. So on a Sunday morning, for example, I think Lando Norris said, why don't we have an esports race? You know, and it's invitational. If you want to get involved, you can. If you don't. Yeah. Um, do you think things like that are something that we'll see sooner rather than later? I, I
1: think we're very lucky that uh, Liberty are an entertainment company. Um, you know, sort of, so they will look at every single thing and learn, they will learn from what's happened, you know, the unfortunate uh, Virus, uh, and they'll learn from it, and they'll see where there's an opportunity. They've always w- were starting, in, the, in since they've been, um, you know, involved in Formula One, and you saw it at the events, as you know, um, the more involvement with fans. So I think, I think it would, it will be, as I always say, it's probably a one point one, one plus one equals three syndrome. It will be, you know, they'll look at the good parts of esports want to make sure that it doesn't take over from the live action. I don't think it will ever take over from live, live action. But they will incorporate it and also, you know, sort of see how it works. I mean, there's another fantastic initiative called F1 in Schools where, you know, they bought STEM, you know, kids who um involved in, in design and STEM and things like that. And that's now part of the Abu Dhabi, the end, end of season uh, finale. Um, So I think they will be very open to looking at how to enhance, essentially, the the entertainment. And if it involves eSports, which I'm sure it will in some form, um, then they will use it because they're open minded to it.
0: Nigel, thank you so much for coming on. It was absolutely fascinating. And I expect next time we speak, I'm expecting to see on Zoom uh, an entire gaming rig set up in your own house as well. Proof that you um, will have bought these. Yeah, the I, I, I don't
1: know. Uh, <laughs> you know Miracles do happen, but I don't know whether that will
0: happen. So Nigel Geach there from Nielsen with some fascinating insights into how esports has been so far. That 244 million people reached for one event is absolutely fascinating. And it seems like an absolute goldmine for Formula 1 going forward, with or without the current situation. You would imagine things will be different when we get back to racing, but clearly an untapped market there. Now, there are so many people involved in esports. It's not just Formula One drivers. I mentioned Lando Norris. I mentioned Max Verstappen. I mentioned Charles Leclerc earlier in this podcast. My next guest is somebody who has been competing in esports for years now, has a remarkable story, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast. It's Rudy Van Buren. You might remember his name as McLaren's world's fastest gamer. That's the competition he won in 2017, which landed him one of the most dream jobs you can imagine. Simulator driver for one of the most famous names in Formula One, McLaren. But hey... I don't want you to hear the story from me. So here's my chat with Rudy about his remarkable story and what he thinks motor racing can do to capitalize on this current surge in esports. Rudy Van Buren. Hello, mate. Thank you very much for coming on the ESPN podcast. We're talking, hello, hello. we're talking all things esports. And I thought, what better place to start than I think one of the, uh, one of the best success stories in that category in, uh, in recent years. Um, you've just finished a race, I understand, or at least, um, prepped for a race. What have you been doing today?
2: No, today was mountain biking. This is staying fit before the race. Oh, I see. Sorry. Uh, yeah, no. So um, <laughs> you're glad you can smell me. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm busy selling sims, doing sim races, uh, trying to stay fit for the real racing season. Um, just taking it all as it is and trying to to maximize it.
0: And have you been racing more in this in this sort of spell that we're in at the moment? Or is it is it quite a lot of the same racing, um, but maybe a bit more intense than before?
2: No, virtually it's been uh been a lot more to be honest normally i always stay away from the from the big competitions because i don't have time to commit to a full season mm-hmm. i have i have time for certain races but never like a six or eight week period because of the work in in the in the in the, in the racing simulators for the teams so then i'd rather not do it instead of doing it half. it's either joint and fight for the championship or not do it at all mm-hmm. um but with recent things happening all of a sudden I have well we all have more time for certain things. Um so I accepted a few um invites for championships and therefore now yeah I do a lot I do a lot of sim racing. Like three evenings a week with uh, with races full on. Um and it's enough as well with all the other stuff going on. Um mm. there's always this quantity quality discussion. Um and I'm getting close to the point where I need to choose quality over quantity instead of yeah. just saying yes to all the invites because there's so much. Um, and if I'm if I'm really honest at the moment, I think there's too much going on already um, yeah. because everybody tries to get their superstar on the grid and clickbait the beep out of it and then get their followers up. Um, and that was fun for two weeks, but now we're four weeks into this um, and we've reached a plateau, I think, that people will get bored of it when stuff keeps popping up. Um, so for a yeah, so- personal point, I'm like, the quantity is taking over or the sorry, the quality is taking over of the, of the quantity stage Yeah, uh, going forward.
0: It's fascinating you say that because I was actually going to ask a bit later about that. And um just kind of, <clears throat> I guess at the moment, that's all, that's all people have got to, to watch racing wise. And there was a huge hype certainly on the, the F1 official series, but that was one of about three different events. I think that were taking place that weekend, you were taking part in another one that weekend yep. and you've been doing that every weekend. Yes. Um I guess let's, let's, We'll talk about where esports is, um, towards the end of this. I just wanted to briefly cover your kind of journey in this as well, because that's a fascinating story in itself. Tell us a bit about how you actually got involved in it, because you, at one stage, you were karting in the, in the Netherlands yourself. Um, and that didn't quite work out the way you'd hoped it did. And that's the same story for a lot of young drivers. So take it away in terms of, in terms of kind of what happened to you and what led you into the world of esports over the world of professional racing.
2: Yeah, well, I, I took the, the route that every, Youngster takes um, in the racing world. Start go karting around your eighth birthday. Go on, go international and, so, and yada yada. Um, but as many as well, for me it stopped. when I was about sixteen year old. Um, you go international, uh, budget go literally through the roof. Even for karting, you're over like hundred grand a year to do it well. Um, and I'm, I'm I come from a wealthy family. Let's say let's say it that way. I've got zero complaints. But sometimes. Go over a certain point, and I need to pull the plug, and they did. Um, Taking consideration with that as well, that my length was becoming an issue for go karting. So at some point, you're like, you got the odds against you, and you just need to take the smart decision, which my dad did at the time. Don't get me wrong; it hurt, but um, as a 16-year-old, when you've probably never looked at a glass of alcohol, if you never looked at a girl or anything, um, there's more in life at that point than just racing. And all, uh, although when it stops, you don't realize that but after a few months you open your eyes up to different things and um one of the things where i by accident ran into was a sim racing game gtr2 at the time you could still go to these places where you could rent games i sound old i'm 20 28 now I'm like 16 at the time but you could go to these places where you can rent dvds or games or anything and i ran into gtr2 and i thought hey this is cool um, this was a high sim game at the time uh, but I had no wheel or anything, so I was doing it on a keyboard, which is a struggle. But then you get addicted, so you get your first wheel, you bolt it to a desk. And, well, now, 12 years later, I'm sitting in some 10K-plus equipment um, with, well, the whole story that happened. But it started back then, and I did I did sim racing for eight or nine years, just on a national level, a little bit of international, uh, through multiple games, just wherever the biggest competition was where I was going. Um and then World's Fastest Gamer came around, which obviously turned everything upside down. Yeah, that uh, was
0: the, and that was the McLaren competition. What yes. what was it about that? They, they were looking to find the best sim racer in the world. And when you first saw that, did you? I mean, I guess you applied for it, but there were so many people that got involved. I forget the numbers. I remember there were thousands that applied, thousands that took part in it. And by the end of it, it whittled down to yourself being the guy that that um, gets picked. Just tell me about that process and what you actually yeah. had to do to to win that to win that prize.
2: Yeah, well, when when it got announced the first time, I actually laughed at it and like, no way, they're not going to put someone in a Formula One simulator. Why would they? Uh, they've got the real drivers, they've got the feedback sorted. What what what's the benefit of a sim guy? Um, but then on the other end, if you don't try and someone else gets the prize and does end up in the simulator, I could only blame myself. So I said, well, there's a qualifying offer two, a game that I'm good at that I like. Let's give it a crack um lucked through the first round with a, with a lack of time to do to work at the time. Um, and then in the final, I was able to win it and then go on to England. And one of the things that I pointed out really early there was they're not, they were not looking for this ultimate hot lap king. They were looking for someone that could benefit them in the simulator. Um, and when I heard that idea, that frame they were sketching about it, I was like, yeah, this is something for me. But there's a few hurdles in the way in these two weeks that I need to cover before I get the chance to show what I can do in the realistic sim. Um, I knew I was good in these hyper-modern sims, like the fully realistic ones. And then all the arcade-ish games or the games with little tricks, I struggle. That's a problem nowadays. It was a problem back then. So I knew at the beginning of that competition, I need to survive the first three, four days where we get the, the Forza, all those kind of things out of the way. And once we get to, in this case it was Carlin when we got there, or we drove the 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 public F one sim from McLaren, I'd say, which you see in a documentary as well. Uh, I knew that was the moment where I needed to start shining, because then it was all excuses out of out, out of the park. Um platform that nobody knows, custom made by McLaren, which they say is realistic, then you need to perform. And when I got to that point and performed, I knew when I stepped out of that sim, like, okay. This is something that I'm up to win. And I mean it in a way as, as in a confidence boost as I, okay, I'm suited for this. This is not a guarantee I'm going to win it, but I knew inside, like I'm the right guy for this job. Um, then we went to Carlin in their simulator, same deal. Um, and then eventually, uh, it came on to a one to one in the, in the form of one simulator half a day. Um, initially the biggest stress was actually if I would fit the thing. Because I'm six, six one, six two in, uh, in feet, like one meter and 91. Um, but that was all right. And the session actually went really well. Um, and then one thing. And the day before that was announced, this has been the most difficult day ever. Uh, me and Freke were both, um, well, we were tired from the, from the 10 day period, but also we had, we, we had both our sessions in the Formula One sim and then we needed to day, o- wait over a day. Um, that was actually the most difficult from the whole competition that you're literally sitting around in a hotel waiting for the result. You know that people around you know the result. You're just sitting down like a headless chicken. Not sure if your face is front to rear, or rearwards. It's just stress, pure stress. Um, but when that word came out, well everything just drops off. Um, we still had some recording to do that evening with, uh, with Zach in his private jet. Uh, <laughs> walking on clouds I'd say. Yeah, um, that's, and then that's, I, a big,
0: that's a pretty big reality check, getting into Zach Brown's private jet, right? Like, that's, yeah. That's a pretty big, like, oh, wow,
2: I've made it moment. Yeah, that, that was a, yeah, it was quite a shock, to be honest, when I was suddenly put in a, in a camera frame with him, and you're sitting there like, oh, damn, this mm-hmm. is going to change everything upside down. That said, uh, 36 hours after the win, I was back at my regular job in Holland, because that went on as well. And they were not so content. I was not there for ten days because I set seven initially, but well, they kept extending the final. So, well, I just, I'm not going home. They can mm. do everything, but I'm not going home. This is a life a life, uh, life opportunity. Um, but I've always had in my back of the, my mind when I when I won it, like this is just step one, and I know I've achieved great things since then. Uh, but I still, so I'm, I'm not there. Mm. I'm I'm climbing the ladder. Um, but it's only, it's only happening by, by hard work and dedication. Nothing's coming on a plate. There's been, there's been things um, in that first McLaren year as well, they would have not happened if I wasn't pushing myself, like trying to open doors, um, showing interest. Um, well, well, we met Pirelli peps, That was a thing as well. Yeah. These things are just by pushing, by trying, asking, creating opportunities.
0: Um, well, sorry, on the... On... On the Pirelli Hot Labs, actually, I was going to mention that, but now you now you do, it's a good chance to talk about it. Yeah, exactly. The famous red flag gif. So anybody who follows Chris Medland on Twitter, we've had Chris Medland on this show before. Whenever there is a red flag in Formula One, Chris will share a gif and it's two guys in a McLaren. One of them goes to put his hand out to shake the other guy's hand. Now that guy putting his hand out is me. Yeah. The person yeah. who completely ignores my handshake is Rudy. Who was about to give me a flying lap of Hockenheim, the, which hosted the German Grand Prix, and it's—I mean, it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's a fantastic gift. But that was your first lap, I think, in that. So that was Pirelli hot laps. They do that with several of the manufacturers. And I remember getting in the car, and I have to confess, you know, i, I was like, well, okay, you know, I know Rudy's won this competition, but—and then you, I think, you got in and said, "Yep, it's my first lap of the day, first lap in this car." And I was like, "Oh, oh man, right. <laughs> is this where it ends?" Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but just so people know, like that's the backstory of that gif. And and you didn't
2: you didn't see me do it, right? You just no, I was you're looking in the mirror. I, yeah. I was truly shocked. I felt bad for it. I apologized afterwards. Like I yeah, yeah. genuinely to didn't see it.
0: Apologized for about a year straight. Every time yeah. I it,
2: I but it. nowadays I just laugh about it when I see red flag. I know it's coming. I retweet it straight away it's yeah. it's a brilliant gif. was like
0: it just happened. Yeah, and, and you know, if Chris doesn't tweet that, teams ask him like, "Hey, where's the where's the gif?" You know, so it's, it's become its own. It's become its own monster. But um, but yeah, that's the story. But that was, and that was just after that was in your year of being sim driver, and you were kind of decked out in the McLaren gear and everything. So you were you were a fully paid up team member. You know, you were a guy who was there. You know, with the team, you weren't just there in an ambassadorial role. How was it? The stuff you were doing was being translated onto the race performance car. Um,
2: well, that was mainly simulator work, of course. Yeah. Um, initially. When you get in such a simulator, you get flooded with information. My first full day in that thing was, was difficult. Um, I know there's many guys out there that think they can do the job. I went in there with the same idea, and I left as a little boy after that day because there's so much going around and happening that you don't expect it to be. Um, but the most difficult thing is to start thinking in the engineering language. Imagine I came from a sim... Background at the time, I did a little bit of cars, but let's say I had almost zero experience with data and those kind of things. Well, you, you know, the, the gas, the, the throttle brakes race and stuff, but not like deep into it. And as soon as I got into that room, I needed to operate at a Formula One level. Normally you go Formula Four, Formula Three, whatever you build and every year the engineering level goes higher you build more knowledge. And by the time you get to Formula One, you know where you're at. I just jumped from a go-kart knowledge plus a little bit of car into Formula One. So yeah. the first few days were definitely tough. But after a few, I um, I started gelling with the engineer. And my initial contract set seven days in the Formula 1 sim. And I always said to myself, going to double or triple that. They don't know it yet, but I know it. Um, we ended up at 27 after the first year. So that's what I mean, like dedication, hard work. And I've spent hours and hours of driving at home after those first few days and analyzing my own sim stuff at home at the level what they required me in England, debriefing it, typing it out, sending it over to England. So the engineer there would actually run through it and see if I used the wrong words that they would prefer or different words than they would prefer, et cetera, et cetera. just to build the knowledge and a base to make sure it could be from value in the sim, basically in a very short time period. So in the first two months, we kind of covered that. And after that, um, there were things with, uh, say, a f- tire model, um, uh, verification from the track, lap time-wise, new car parts, anything um, came on my plate because they knew, okay, he's up for it now. We can trust his feedback and go on. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you if you if you put it to like percentage, what did I do to the real car? Zero point one. It's so difficult to pinpoint because the car is never the same in the sim. The only thing that matters is you drive. You drive the wheels of the thing in a manner that you can give proper feedback and. um Align with what the engineers say in the data. So you build trust and then you can build on performance. Um, and that's what we did. So what did I do? A lot of correlation work, especially like if after a weekend, they need to correlate the sim to the actual track data. And um, racing drivers do that. But a racing driver flies home from a racetrack and has one chance basically to jump in the sim and say, okay, this is the same as the real car. Because if they need to start adapting for two hours, the feeling is gone. So I would jump in the middle of that. I would get the feedback of the drivers, then go in the sim, make sure the car feels like they say it does in quality. Even if the balance is not good, search for that balance, lap time wise, everything. And then when the driver comes in, he can stay the way, say, yeah, that's how the real car feels because then the engineers can build from that model in in, in the sim to uh, adapt that and make it more suited for the driver and use that knowledge for the next race. So there's, it's it's too much to mention and um as you probably also know there's there's NDAs, there's everything, so you can't go into too much detail, but there's there's been nothing that I've not done um in the sim. But all of that is by um a lot of hard work and, and pushing, pushing, pushing to to get the chances.
0: And it's a great <clears throat> it's a great insight into just how deep these F one operations are because you know, for a lot of people they see the racing and you know, it kind of starts at the beginning of the race or maybe at the start of qualifying ends at the end of the race. There's so much going on behind the scenes. Just to quickly talk about the time at McLaren, it obviously I mentioned it, but you were one of your teammates, I guess, was Fernando Alonso now. I mean, one of the most famous drivers of the modern era. First of all, you know, a couple of months before that, you wouldn't have even been involved in Formula One in any way, but what was it like working with him? And and he's now actually he's he's quite on board with these sports. He's got his own team and stuff like that. So it's something that he's actually embraced himself. How did you find working with him and how was it did he initially you know, was he initially a bit sceptical about it? Was anyone sceptical about it? Because it was such a new thing McLaren was trying at the time. No one had really done that before.
2: I don't think he was sceptical. Um, but on the other hand, I think I've spoken to him about 50 words in the whole year. Um, everybody, you know how Formula One works. Everybody does their own thing in their own benefit. Um, and he basically just completely trusted whatever happened in the sim as long as his car went faster. Well, it was not the most successful year for McLaren. So you can also imagine that he probably didn't give the the 100% focus on the sim because he had different things to worry about. Um, But in February, after I won it, there was the car presentation in Navarra, Spain, and I arrived there as a – well, I I defined myself as a little boy at the time because I was scared of everything uh, because you're you're in Formula 1 world and I'm getting there with my own rental car. Like, oh, I hope I see some familiar faces in the box. 7.30 in the morning, pull up at the parking lot. A Mercedes absolutely sends it down the parking lot and parks in front of me. I get out of my car like, hey, what, what a goon. And then opens up the door, Fernando. And the first thing he says, "Good morning, Rudy. My day was made. He knew who I was. And then I was completely done. And <laughs> I said, you you, you change out a few more words during the day. Because obviously at 7.30, he's not waiting on a chat. And I wasn't either. It's the only thing I thought was, okay, familiar faces and coffee. And then Fernando says, good morning. With my first name, my day was done. I was completed. And then obviously had the pictures afterwards, and they're straight. And he was like joking around that I was way too tall, that they needed to crop my head off for the picture and all that stuff. So there was just a little, there was an enter thing going on. Um, and we we carried that on through the year, but always in the, in the in the small portions. It's not like the new kid comes to the team and he's gonna sit on a table with him and talk all day. It's it's not like that. Yeah,
0: and that, and that is something worth saying is that most F1 drivers are much smaller than you all. Than most people will imagine as well as you said you're 6'1 6'2 and if you were to line up against most drivers i think maybe ocon of the current lot might be the same height as you but the rest of them yeah but the width is about double for me <laughs> yeah which, which does create complications you know a lot of drivers have had that that in the past um you've moved from mclaren that's obviously completely changed the complexion of your career and stuff like that you've raced um you raced at austin i remember we were we were in austin and you were racing out there just tell us a few of the things you've been able to do since that. And it's been it's been real-world racing as well, not just sim racing that you've been doing.
2: Yep. Well, in the first year, um, well, the first big thing was Race of Champions. I got asked like a month after winning World Fastest Gamer, like, do you want to do Race of Champions? Uh, they were starting this e- e-rock virtual thing with it, and then the winner was put in the real competition. And the first thing I said, I'll do Race of Champions, but only if you put me between the big guys. No virtual, just straight in the main event, no extra practice put me against the championship invite. Well, then Darren Cox initially, a hmm. brave mother. Beep. <laughs> like, yep. Two days later, he calls back. It's done. Like, oh God. <laughs> there we go. We're going to react. I'm going to face sober and anything, not zero lap extra practice. And I'm the newbie. Um, so prior to race of champions, they arranged a day at Palmer Motorsport, where I drove around in a 2 and an M4 and a Arrow Atom. To get the, to get the, the webs off, to get some sort of car, because it was about seven years since I was in the race car. Um, they went well, instructors were blown away, so I went to Riyadh with, with confidence. Not as in, I'm gonna win this thing, but at least I'm not gonna lose my face against these guys. Um, went to Riyadh, nearly beat Christensen in the, in the NASCAR as a debut there, and my day, my weekend was made already, back then. I made a mistake with uh, with 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 the rock car against Coulthard, but um, I beat a few of the guys, including Lando at the time. So it was perfect for team banter. Nobody expected that, so I left Riyadh with my with my head out high and a bit like, "What is next in the real car?" And that was um, something that hunted me down through the year, where me and McLaren had a different vision, um, and where I sometimes felt I'm I'm being held back where I thought there's opportunity. Um, and I don't mean this in a bad word to McLaren. We just had different vision on how to um, exploit the whole situation we were both in. Um, but then um, um, Goodwood came around. Really do you want to do Goodwood with the M23? It's been released in R Factor two, we've got the car here. Um, and they were they were they were th- talking about it but not not pushing it. So this is another example. But I, at some point, ran into Zach and just made it, just popped the question out there. And it came down to one question from him on email. Does Rudy fit in the car? <laughs> Not the same discussion as always. So, next time in, arranged it, historic mechanics, car in the boulevard. You can't touch the cars, but I was allowed to sit in it. And we came to the conclusion that it fitted. So, then it was... <clears throat> We're gonna do Goodwood in Emerson Fifty, tallies car. So another another super cool thing. Um, Week after was Hockenheim, where we met for the first time. Mm -hmm. Um, Hockenheim went well. I was under a big, uh, I was under a big spotlight there. Obviously, Gamer gets McLaren on track. What is he gonna do? Um, So kept it safe. Didn't even put the traction control off. Just drove around. Had a good laugh um and not long after that i got noticed that i uh i was doing Suzuka,
0: and i thank you for keeping it safe as well that did help my peace of mind during the lap and it still didn't feel like it didn't feel like you're taking it safe on the lap i'll just say that it was absolutely
2: yeah Yeah, the car is a rocket ship so even if you go at 80 percent, if you're not used to those cars you're you're mind blown because it's that fast um but not long after that i got asked for Suzuka and kota so that was super cool to do as well especially kota in a 720s which is we we both we we were in a 570, which is a great car, but a 720 is like on steroids. It's ridiculous. We were doing nearly 300 KPAs there in the dry at Kota with that car. So that was, uh, that was super cool. Um, and we just kept building and building on the, on the sim days. And like I mentioned before, we got up to the 27. Um, and me and both McLaren agreed at the end of the year, like, hey, we had different visions, but we made a damn cool year. Um, which was way more than any of us expected prior to it. So we looked at each other, me and the the person I was talking to, mostly for me, it was Ben Payne. Um, we just looked at each other like, damn, we pulled this off, um, regardless of different visions and stuff. This this was really cool. Um, but sometimes you need to split ways. It's F1. There's political reasons. There's There's many things going on. Um, and if there's different chances elsewhere, Go for it. And, uh, we agreed that, that was better at the time. Um, and I went onwards. But this yes. was, just, this was just 2018. This was just 2018. There's a, there's a whole year after that as well. Um, with Formula E-SIM work, with Porsche Super Cup guest races, with Porsche Carrera Cup guest races. There's so many things, um, which happened because of that first year with McLaren that I can only look back at it and just a big thank you to every single one there that uh, that made it possible because it's it's been the foundation of what's uh, what's happening right now
0: yeah and like you said at the beginning like you know the door was shut in your face you know when you were 16 so for it to open so much later down the line I mean there's literally I don't think you could find another racing driver from who's followed a traditional path that could have even um rivaled that story also a shout out you mentioned his name Ben Payne was a huge part of that for McLaren he played a huge role in that and we've spoken to him um, a couple of times on ESPN. Just talking now, we'll just quickly round off with um, esports in general at the moment. There's obviously having this boom period because I guess, unfortunately, because of the situation that we're in worldwide. But um, you, you said something really interesting at the start of this chat of, of how much there was. And that's been the thing for me that I found hard to connect with because every day there's a different event. There's, they've got different names. They're on different platforms. They're on different circuits. But the big chat around this is how does Formula One, how does motor racing capitalize on it because clearly there's such a there's such a fan base there that maybe hasn't been hasn't been properly tapped into yet where do you think the future is with esports and motor racing do you think there's an easy way for them to adapt to it because it seems like there's so many ideas and the more you think about it potentially you think of five ten fifteen new ideas and all of them go in different paths so what would with somebody who's been so involved in it how would you how would you capitalize on it at this point
2: i think the biggest mistake by the the audience is thinking that a successful racing driver is going to be successful in a sim straight away because mm-hmm. that's just not the case um it's almost disrespectful to the top guns in sim racing because they put in so much time to be good um people only see the stories of norris and verstappen being good in iRacing, racing uh, but they forget how many hours they put into it to get to that point initially they were not there mm-hmm. uh, so now when the other guys jump in you see where they're really really but to be more precise regarding your question, um, there's, there's things happening everywhere at the moment. People try to benefit from the situation as in the sim racing gets the spotlight. Real life racing drivers are, well, let's say pretty much bored, want to stay sharp, get a sim, say yes to everything initially. Um, struggle, argue, start doing their own championships. There's so many, so many directions going on that I can understand that if you're, if you're the audience side, you get lost with what's happening at the moment. Because it's this game with with VIPs in it, then it's they're not a competition with some of the real guys in it. Then it's purely the real guys. Then it's just sim race. It's it's a different day, a different story, and I think we're getting lost at the moment. There's a few organisations doing it really well, and I think that's where I meant with the quality quantity thing. That's the one you should focus on. Um, and besides that, I think we're gonna we're gonna lose a little bit of audience after this anyway. Yes, sim racing will gain audience from this, but I think it's a case like the 10 step forward, maybe six steps back. Because as soon as we start racing in real life again, I'm, I think half of the audience at least will just jump over to the real thing again and probably not look at the sim anymore. Is this a perfect timing to show the sim racing world? Have benefit in the sim racing world? Yes. Um, but this will definitely not take over. I've said it before that I think sim racing makes real racing stronger and vice versa. Uh, but one's never gone, one, one is never going to replace the other.
0: Yeah. And, um, just final question. I mean, um, I guess the star of this, you've spoken about racing, at race of champions, but Lando has been kind of the guy, I guess, has become the face of it from the, from the last I think. You race against him and, and Verstappen and a few of the other guys. What's that like when you're actually racing those guys? Because they're racing in, in situations that you guys are more familiar with, perhaps, in terms of sim racing. So what is that like? How, how competitive do you guys get? For a lot of people, they might assume that, Racing online somehow lacks the edge that a a race on track might have. But I don't think that's that's fair to say, is it?
2: No, I think we're we're at least as competitive as the as the real life. In let's let's say differently, in real life you're limited to your free practice, your quality, and then you need to perform. Whereas in sim racing, if you've got time and you invest time, you're likely gonna find one or two tenths. Well, both of the names you just mentioned and plenty of guys out there in so many hours before each race to be competitive everybody sees this as a well it is a game yes is it realistic well close enough but they're 100% committed to it to win and there's not a single one out there that doesn't enter a race with that i want to win this because it's the, it's just the racing blood that gets boiling we're using a wheel we're using pedals uh but it's virtually but every single one of them is competitive puts in the time or more than what they should put to, to get that competitive edge. And I think that's what, what's probably shocking to some of the new real drivers coming into the sim world that they, they that there's such deficit initially where they think they, ah oh, they see Max and London do it. Oh, we can do it. And then they get in an rating and get over a second, a lap and they're lost. And then it's the point. Okay. How competitive are you? Are you going to pull your finger out and put the dedication in now you got the time and get there? Or are you going to complain that you just want to do a competition without sim races because then you can be up front? Um, so I think it's eye-opening for uh, for a lot of these guys how competitive the sim racing is. We got we got engineers in the team, we got social media people, we've got a team website, we've got everything going on. I think some of the sim stuff we do is is realistically up to a Formula Three-ish level on engineering side with how how serious we take it, how deep we dive into the in the data analyze to to find setup things and so on. Like the whole, this Porsche championship, which is going on in iRacing now, which is starting next week, if I'm correct. 200k on the line. Best, best team in iRacing there. People are going nuts to to, to test for that. To find setup gimmicks. To, to just drive more and more and more to find that final tenth. And it's, it's, it's competitive. It's more competitive than many, many racing series out there.
0: Mm. That's remarkable. I mean, when you talk about that kind of money. You know, it's 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 easy to ignore that and just think that it's people gaming online. But like you say, it's, it's it's basically become its whole industry in itself. Yeah. Um. Rudy, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Absolutely love that. And now we're talking about Hockenheim. We've got to find a way somehow of doing another lap together somehow in some way in the future. I don't quite know how we'd do it, but if we do, the promise has to be that we actually have a handshake at the beginning yeah. of it. That's that's yeah, all that we're putting. On. Deal. <laughs> deal. So, Rudy, no doubt we'll have you on again at some point to talk about esports. Thanks very much. And like I said, thanks for coming on, mate. Thank you. So you have it. Rudy Van Buren, one of the brightest talents at esports right now. And as I said, an unbelievable story going from karting to a guy that had basically given up on his racing career and then suddenly is back there racing at McLaren. And, you know, when Fernando Alonso knows your first name, you're doing something right in life, right? Well, that's all we have for this week's eSports episode. As I said to Rudy, there is so much more eSports that we can talk about. And let's face it, at the moment, it's going to be one of the few current things that there is to actually analyze and pick into. Next week, we're going to be talking about the Grand Prix that isn't taking place on that day the chinese grand prix that's of course the first race this year that was postponed we're going to be looking back at the history of that race now you might think well is there that much to it well lewis hamilton lost himself a championship there in 2007 one of the moments i can remember very very vividly we're going to be looking at that we're going to be looking at a torres wheels exploding uh in the braking zone we're going to be looking at one of daniel ricardo's best race wins all those things happened in the last few years at shanghai so please do join us again and thank you so much for listening to this week